This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Full props uh, to Claire Allen, who is doing up a story on this for later on in the show. So she needs to gather your intel off our hot question of the day. She found this. A national study actually looked into uh, how British Columbians feel about talking about some of the biggest taboo topics. You know, those ones that fire up a dinner party and maybe see people like walk out (laughs) or can instantly make things uncomfortable. Uh, Yeah, those taboo topics, the forbidden subjects for some. It's our hot question of the day. You can find it at Jody Vance on Twitter, at CKNW on Twitter. Uh, This new study found that BC residents are uncomfortable talking about sex, followed by money, politics, and religion. So which of these four topics of conversation make you most uncomfortable? Is it sex, money, politics, or religion? You can also call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899, or hit me up uh, on my email, Jody at cknw.com. That's Jody with a Y. Same deal on Twitter, at Jody Vance, J-O-D-Y-V-A-N-C-E. When is enough truly enough? When it comes to the homeless camp at Oppenheimer Park, there's an injunction ready to go on clearing that park out, but it's on hold until housing can be found for tent residents, camp residents. They, the decamping will happen when there are homes for everybody. And we all know the crisis we are in when it comes to affordable homes uh, and, and so urgently needed. But now, after last night, where there was a seizure by police of a cache, knives, bear spray, machetes, firearms, some replica, some real, found on the site in a tent. What happens next? For his take on how we got to this point and where we must go from here is Park Board Commissioner John Cooper joining us live on the phone. Hey, John. Good morning, Jody. I woke up to this story and I thought of you immediately. Thank you for being on with us today. Well, it's unfortunate, you know, we keep waking up to these stories. I mean, this is a big uh, cache of uh, of weapons and uh, obviously very concerning from a public safety point of view. You know, this uh, encampment has been there over a year. Um, I was by there in the last couple of days. It's bigger than ever. There's virtually no uh, area of the park that is not um, occupied with a tent or large structure, uh, including the baseball diamond and everything. The... Services that used to be offered there have not been offered now for some time. Our staff are not attending there. Um, the VPD only found this uh, cache of weapons because they were there on a domestic dispute call. Um, and that's very concerning. And apparently these were pretty well in plain sight uh, inside one of the large tents. So I think it's it's way past time for action. And, and both uh, Commissioner Tricia Barker, my fellow NPA commissioner, we've been calling for this injunction since the middle of last year, and we're now well over a year into it. And, um, you know, I know there's been work done, being work done, and we're hopeful there'll be something, some announcement soon, but obviously it looks like things are more entrenched than ever. And that's the piece of this puzzle that seems so chaotic, is the entrenched camp. I mean, at one point a year ago, it was down to just a handful of tents that were left there. Why wasn't it completely cleared out and maintained at that point? Well, it was, and it was a result of the GM's order, and then the Cope Green Alliance at uh, Park Board, at that time, I think everybody was expecting the injunction was going to be uh, asked for at the Supreme Court, and basically they turtled, and, um, you know, we have a new new chair of the Park Board since December, uh, Camille DeMott, very nice uh, young guy, but uh, at this point, we're really not seeing, I think, what people are expecting is is a solution here, and it's way past the time we should have had a solution. And when you say solution, that's the quote-unquote decampment that keeps coming up, right? Well, yeah. I mean, the Park Board is not the Board of Housing, and mm-hmm. I think that's the that's the thing that gets missed here. And certainly, um, you know, previously, boards uh, uh, in 20, 2014, I believe it was, the board did go forward with an injunction, and, and the park was returned to the community. And that's like, the community has no use of that park. There is no recreation going on other than there is camping going on, and that's it. 
And for families and and citizens living nearby Oppenheimer Park, it wasn't that long ago that it was it was a respite. It was a place where where people who were living in in maybe compromised situations or or very tight or uh, SROs or living in a shelter or what have you, that was a green space, a place to go to really uh, be able to sort of. Uh, feel some semblance of, of freedom and normalcy in, in, a, in a very um, impoverished community. And now it is more war zone than it is park grounds. And yeah. people just can't, I, I mean, I'm not overstating it. If, if you haven't been on the downtown east side lately, there are people avoiding the entire area because the encampment that's taken over Oppenheimer. And the, the, the lost opportunity is our staff were doing great work there, providing yeah. services for many, many years. And, and the park board has done great work in the community and i know that our staff want to get back there but right now they are not there um you know there's concerns about staff uh, safety and um you know again we hear from the organizer uh, chrissy brett who was uh the same person who was at the legislature uh uh, shutting down uh, the legislature the other day, that, uh, you know, this is, you know, the, the police are, are stretching or making the story bigger than it is. And, I mean, <laughs> they're there. They've seen, I mean, the pictures of the of the weapons that have been seized are there for everybody to see. And, uh, you know, I think we have, um, you know, a tremendous professional police force in, in, in Vancouver. And I know the chief, Adam Palmer, is uh, very progressive and, tries to work extremely hard to ensure that people are treated uh, reasonably and and for you know critics to say this is you know they're embellishing things is really um, quite sad I think. I think it's unfair and yeah. I think it reflects it doesn't reflect well on uh, on the group because you know I think the VPD if anything have been super um, supportive and, and helpful to the uh, the whole community in the downtown east side. There's no, many years. Exactly. There's no question of that. And this is just one of those situations that is a flashpoint. It's an opportunity for those to maybe, you know, take take one issue and twist it and turn it and create it into something different or bigger or something that fits their agenda. It doesn't feel to me, and, and this is certainly just my opinion and, and, and what I've spoken with numerous times with George Affleck on the topic, you and I have talked about this before. It feels like there are some people who are really in need of, of housing, there's no question, who are camped there. But there no are question. others that are staying there and would not take a house if offered to them. Yeah, yeah and it's just uh, this situation, I think everybody feels it's gone on too long. That park needs to re- return to the community. Right now, that's a very park-deficient area of our city. Mm-hmm. You know, we're coming into to spring. People want to go. They want to be able to enjoy their park. I'd like to see the new chair, uh, Camille DeMont, make some kind of a of a public update on what is happening. I know that the uh, what, what used to be the Portland Hotel Society, which is now called PHS, has been um, brought on board to try and and uh, help this solution, this situation, be resolved. But I think the public should be getting an update, and I think the it's um, the park board chair, uh, who's a green commissioner, and uh, it's the Cope Green Alliance that have basically dragged their feet on this. I think publicly, uh, he should be he should be out there and telling people what steps are being taken, what is the timeline, when are we going to see action here? Where because you- it's gone on far too long. It has gone on far too long. We're with John Cooper, who's Park Board, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner, and uh, certainly we have been getting almost uh, whatever, every three weeks we speak with you, John, to get updates on Oppenheimer Park. It feels as though so much time and effort is is being put around, as you just mentioned, PHS, the uh, the society that's gone in to help you know make significant improvements on cleanliness and wellness uh, for people that are camping there. Um, there's some you know barbecues brought in. There's some some services available to make it. Um, somewhat livable, I guess, is the way to put it, but it is not even close to what it was just uh, 18 months ago when people could literally go and picnic there or play on the baseball diamond there. Oppenheimer Park is a park. It's a Vancouver space for Vancouver citizens. It's not a place to set up camp. And now we're starting to see camp sort of pop up and crop up everywhere from doorways to other parks, parkettes and, and whatnot in and around the lower mainland. It's a symptom of a greater problem. And yet it's a symptom that's been sitting before us for so long. What is the next possible step? Is it time for an injunction in in your opinion? Or, or would that just set us up for a clash now? 
Well, I think, you know, the the steps to get housing, I, su- I support that. But, uh, you know, I think uh, we need to move a lot quicker. This has gone on for over a year. Um, that's far far too long, and there has to be another solution. And, um, you know, the park board, as I, as I say, is not the board of housing. It's frustrating, I think, for for me and, and uh, Commissioner Barker to, you know, people look to us to say, you know, what are you guys doing? And, yeah. of course, we have two votes of the seven, so... Uh, we really need a, um, the other commissioners to take this, um, I think, a health and safety situation much more seriously. And I'm hopeful they will do that. I keep asking for them to do that, but that's that's really what I can do. And uh, I appreciate you having me on, and I appreciate you uh, staying on this story because uh, I think we need people to understand that it's a pretty serious situation down there. It is, and we need to draw some attention to it in that regard and the urgency piece. And, and we're going to open up the phone lines here. If you've got an opinion on what is happening or not happening at Oppenheimer Park, 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell. We'll take your calls in the next segment. Uh, just continuing just for a sec here with John Cooper, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. One of the things that pops to mind here of, you know, Oppenheimer is a beast unto its own right now. And as you mentioned, you and Trisha Barker have been very vocal about this for more than a year and, and you're just two of seven votes. And many of us voting taxpaying Vancouverite citizens went to uh, the municipal elections and thought, you know what, instead of having like one group have, you know, total control here, we're going to mix it up and make it a whole bunch of people who have to work together. That feels like it's really backfired with regard to the park board. Well, you know, I think, uh, you know, democracy is a wonderful thing. You know, I've been on the board. This is my third term. You know, people that get on there, I think they, they want to do the best and they, and they think, you know, they're trying to do the best that they can and they have different opinions and I value that. So I, I'm not really here to, to uh, you know, disparage anybody, but I think that, I think, I think most people would think that uh, allowing a situation like this to go on and on um, is just not good, and uh, it's time that action was taken. And I think that uh, probably, I think the majority of Vancouverites would would support, um, you know, moving quicker to get get these people housed. But also, at some point, you've got to say, look, you can't camp in a park. It's not. Uh, it's not. It's not healthy. Uh, it's, it's untenable. And yeah. we have a criminal element there. And the VPD have been very clear over and over again. Um, and this latest um, discovery um, just makes it quite obvious that things are off the rails there. And But going back to my point about the makeup of the park board, everybody's been voting consistently one way. And is it not time for maybe some on the board to have the discussion and think to themselves, perhaps my, my, my staunch stance on this being without an injunction, maybe it's time to, to, to listen to people who are saying it, it is time to, to do something here. I hope so. Yeah. And uh, I keep trying, and uh, that's, the <laughs> unfortunately, this is where we are, but I think, uh, I think everybody realizes or should realize that uh, it, better, it, it better get resolved quickly because we're coming into summer and we're going to get another influx if we're not uh, on top of this. Well, appreciate you being on top of it. You're always available to us when we want to discuss it, John. Thanks for this. Thank you very much. That's John Cooper, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. You know, the World Health Organization is raising the risk assessment of COVID-19 to very high at the global level. The WHO's Director General says there are now 4,351 cases of the new coronavirus in 49 countries. We still have a chance of containing this virus. If robust action is taken to detect cases early, isolate and care for patients, and trace contacts. What is spreading rather freely right now is misinformation. It's time to turn our attention to science. Take a moment to, to listen to talk to Dr. Peter Hotez here, an infectious disease specialist at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital, and has been integral in vaccinology in past outbreaks like SARS. So glad to welcome the professor to the show. Thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for having me back. You know what's so interesting is trying to track you down today. You said, hold on, I've just got, I got to do this thing with CNN. And I know on your Twitter feed, you just did MSNBC. And, and then you're doing Fox. Like, you're literally educating an entire nation. Well, more importantly, I'm unifying the country. Uh, you know, going back and forth to MSNBC and Fox News, the two ends of the political spectrum. So that's fun, too. And important. 
It is important because the topic that we really want to um, speak with you about is how much misinformation is out there. And when we see misinformation coming from the highest of levels or just distraction, uh, saying things like, this is just the flu, just the flu. Uh, and in speaking with you over the last, what, six, seven weeks now, we know this is more than just the flu, right? Well, a couple of things about that. One, there's no such thing as just the flu. The flu is a pretty bad illness. Actually, even the president found that out. President Trump found that out a couple of days ago, and he talked about some of the numbers linked to flu. And we've had 14,000 people in the U.S. die this flu season, including almost 100 kids who were not vaccinated despite, uh, uh, despite recommendations by the CDC to get vaccinated. So flu is a bad actor, this one, I think, is even worse in many ways. And, and the, by this, I mean the new SARS-2 coronavirus. And the reason I say that is we've gotten some numbers out of China, and, and assuming the numbers out of China hold up in North America, it's going to be a, a tough ride. Uh, we, we know that the case fatality rate is around 2%, which is about 10, 20 times higher than flu. Initially, when that 2% number came out, uh, a number of investigators looked at that and said, yeah, but that doesn't really account for the people with low-grade symptoms or without symptoms, so it's far lower than 2%. But then uh, Bruce Elward from the World Health Organization two days ago came out with his assessment. I think he may be right that that 2% number looks like it's going to hold. It's real. So we're looking at something that is significantly more uh, uh, serious and lethal than than typical seasonal influenza. Uh, so that, that's a concern, as, especially if among high-risk populations like our healthcare workers. Uh, we've seen a, a big hit on healthcare workers in China. And those older people who, um, over the age of 60, as well as those with underlying diabetes and hypertension and other chronic conditions. So I'm, I'm concerned about that. I'm also concerned about the transmissibility of this virus. It looks like it's uh, may be significantly more uh, infectious or transmissible than typical seasonal influenza is. And uh, the Chinese scientists have come up with some numbers uh, to uh, account for that. So this is not, if, if, if this virus gains a significant foothold in North America, in the U.S. and Canada and Mexico, as many think, then it, it's, it's going to be very tough over the next few weeks. So let's talk about just what exactly tough looks like. When we're at this, what the World Health Organization uh, Director General said this morning at the briefing, we're at this decisive point. Where are we now and where might we go in, in the days and weeks to come? Because you've been sort of predicting all along over the last six, seven weeks since we've been talking with incredible accuracy as to what we might be seeing next. Where are we at now and what, what can we expect possibly? Well, right now, I think we may be seeing the beginning of some community-level transmission. Um, this is happening right now in Northern California. Uh, there may be some of this going on in Mexico right now. I'm not so sure about Canada, but um, the big question is this. What's it going to look like over the next few weeks? Will it be uh, small areas of local community transmission and maybe half a dozen or even a dozen pockets across North America, or will it be something more substantial? Will we be talking about a third of the country infected or half the country is infected, you know, uh, a, meaning a, a sizable chunk of, of the population? That's where we don't know, and, uh, and because it's a new virus agent, so we really don't have a way to predict. You know, there's a, also a lot of influencing factors, how quickly we can uh, implement uh, protective measures, especially among our healthcare workers. Whether there's seasonality to this virus, uh, some coronaviruses have seasonality, especially in the northern hemisphere, peaking in the winter, dying down in the spring or summer. Uh, the pre President Trump has talked about this, but we really don't know. It's a brand new virus agent, if, if that's the case as well. So, unfortunately, there's more we don't know than we do know, and, and that's often the toughest for the people of the U.S. and Canada. You know, I think, you know, from my experiences, once people know what they're in for, what, what they're going to be dealing with, people can 
hunker down and, and get ready for it. It's, I think it's the unknown that could be very frightening for people, and it's frightening for scientists as well. Yeah, it, it is that sort of underlying piece of, of just tension where it's becoming the topic. People are throwing down the word pandemic, which we're not there yet, right? We haven't reached the global uh, breadth of a pandemic with this particular COVID-19 virus, have we? Well, you know, when, when we talk about pandemic, what we're usually referring to is sustained transmission in multiple parts of the country in significant levels. We're certainly inching towards that. I agree we're not there yet. Uh, so the World Health Organization is specifically not using the P word, but I'm not sure it really matters that much. We, you know, in terms of our public health preparedness, what we have to do in the U.S. and Canada we have to assume that it will gain pandemic status, and if it doesn't happen, great. But at least we're at least we're ready. Right, the preparations are key, and we learned a great deal, as you and I have spoke about before. We've learned a great deal from the SARS outbreak of 2003, which helps particularly here in Canada because Toronto was so central to that. That our healthcare system have. Uh, protections in place to manage as best as possible. But it feels like when we're looking at hollowed out uh, cities in China and and hundreds of millions of people in in lockdown scenario, we're watching uh, similar things happening in South Korea. Now there's what has been taking place in Milan and Fashion Week there being shut down and, and just travel being of big concern and, and Paris Fashion Week is next and there's some news surrounding that. Is it is it an, is it a no brainer, uh, Professor, for people to sort of pull back a little bit? The last time we spoke, I said, you know, what do we got to do? We got to wash hands. We got to get vaccinated. And you did slide in there and maybe avoid uh, very densely uh, populated gatherings. Yeah, and, and I and I with that last part, definitely you want to make certain you're up today and your flu vaccinations at least take that off the table yeah you don't want to make the canadian health authorities have to battle flu and this new coronavirus at the same time same with you know getting your kids vaccinated against measles and other up-to-date childhood vaccinations in terms of changing behaviors at this point uh i, I i'm saying not to at this point because okay. if, if we we don't have evidence of significant levels of transmission either in the U.S. and Canada, except for that one area in in Northern California. Uh, But be mindful and stay close to the news because this this could change pretty quickly. But the point that I've been trying to make is, you know, it's not as if we're going to go from uh, nothing to half the country infected, right? You're not all of a sudden going to wake up tomorrow and find millions of people in Ontario and, and, uh, and, and neighboring provinces uh, uh, infected with this virus. You're going to have some time to prepare because you'll see these little focal areas of transmission and then you'll get, the, uh, and then you'll, you, then you'll get that, that kind of notice and warning. So I, I would uh, keep, keep, uh, keep doing what you're doing. I'm still flying domestically. I haven't uh, altered my travel schedule yet. Um, unfortunately, I, no one's offering me Stanley Cup tickets, uh, so I, I don't have that option. But if, if somebody would offer them to me, I would certainly still accept them. Um, and so there you are. So we're not, we're, we're being uh, diligent in being informed uh, because there have been sort of pardon the pun, but viral pieces that have gone uh, far and wide of misinformation about this and people talking about, you know, stockpiling food and food insecurity and and being ready to hunker down and how, you know, we're watching the the Dow crash. I mean, it's... It's it's a tough it's a tough moment for people when when news is disseminated in a way that perhaps isn't fact based. That's why you're in such high demand right yeah, now. Yeah, and that and that and and that's why we need such why good public health communication is important. Um, the one thing that that I would recommend, at least on the U.S. side, is now that President Trump is a, uh, a appointed. Not one czar, but it looks like two czar. Well, a czar and a czarina, um, uh, Dr. Burks and, and our vice president, 
you know, those individuals or somebody they designate needs to be out there, maybe not every day, but every couple of days, giving an update and explaining to the public uh, what they think might happen next, because that can definitely uh, allay some fears uh, and, the, and anxieties, and probably the, the same in Canada as well. So I would say, you know, having good public health communication, what you want to avoid is a situation that happened a few days ago in the U.S., where you had, uh, and these are all good people, but they had different perspectives. So one from CDC saying the sky is falling. Then you had Secretary Azar sort of dialing that back. And then you had Homeland Security sort of un- un- uncertain about things. Then you had the White House saying, no, uh, don't worry, be happy. Yeah. And, that, and that itself, when there's that kind of disagreement, it causes loss of confidence. So really getting on the same page and messaging is absolutely critical. That's why I follow you on Twitter religiously. Thank you for this. Yeah, my pleasure. And, uh, you know, this is a dialogue. We'll just keep going. You always answer the call, and I very much appreciate that, Professor. Thank you. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Dr. Peter Hotez, infectious disease specialist at Baylor College of Medicine in Texas Children's Hospital, and he's in vaccinology. This, is, this guy was on the team that developed the vaccine for SARS. A constitutional challenge by a doctor who argues patients should have the right to pay for private care if the public system leaves them waiting too long is expected to wrap up today in a Vancouver courtroom. Dr. Brian Day began his battle a decade ago against the B.C. government. The case started in B.C. Supreme Court in 2016 and final arguments are scheduled to come to a close today. So Day, an orthopedic surgeon, has centered his battle on arguments around BC patients having a right to pay for services if wait times in the public system are too long. We are here simply to ask the Supreme Court of British Columbia whether a patient suffering on a wait list in BC should have less protection under Canadian law than a similar patient in Quebec. So the BC Health Coalition, Canadian Doctors for Medicare and the BC Nurses Union are interveners in the case. They argue that the creation of a two-tier system would jeopardize our healthcare system and would only benefit patients who can afford to pay for private care. You know, this is not about patient needs. It's about doctor needs. It's about doctors who want to bill and double bill the system for themselves. Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, has been following this case for almost as long as it has been in front of the courts and joins us now to discuss the origins of the battle and both sides arguing on this case and how it could impact our healthcare system. As always, Keith, uh, thank you so much for being with us. Good to be here, Joe. You're right. I've been following this pretty well since even before it started. This goes back really to the 90s when the Canby Surgery Centre was first established almost immediately picked a fight with the then NDP government of the day, and it finally landed in court in 2016, but really it began its way through the legal system back in 2009. And so take us on the journey, if you will, and sort of lay the groundwork for people who may have like, yeah, I remember this, I remember back then, and, but it's, I mean, today's the day. Well, today's the day for closing arguments. Right. We don't know when we're going to get the judgment. And if, I would assume this is going to go to the Supreme Court of Canada because it has profound implications for the entire uh, healthcare system right across the country. So uh, Day was um, sort of had been gone after by a number of uh, parties. The Medical Services Commission audited him. Uh, the NDP government has brought in a bill, you know, finding doctors if they try to work both sides of the public and private system. So uh, he's been fighting pretty well since about 2006 in terms of legal challenges. He finally launched a, a charter challenge in 2009. He's focusing his his argument on Section 7 of the Charter Rights and Freedoms that uh, the banning people or preventing people from accessing health care in the private uh, system uh, denies their right to life, liberty, and security. And so he's making that a constitutional argument. And then he seized upon a provincial piece of legislation called the BC Medicare Protection Act, and he's going after three parts of it. One is, uh, it, he says, it's unfair to have a prohibition on private duplicative, duplicative insurance. 
that it's wrong to have limits or bans on extra billing for doctors to charge over and above what is what is uh, costing in the public system, and a ban on uh, on dual practice that you can't uh, practice in both a private clinic and a public uh, healthcare facility. So th- those are the legal arguments. His his fundamental argument is you have a constitutional right if you are in pain or in need of a medical procedure, you should not be. Um, prevented from obtaining that procedure on a base on a timely basis that you think is required by what he considers to be the artificial construct of a public health care system where wait times you're where everyone's treated the same you can't queue jump or go ahead of the line simply because you've got more money than the next guy uh, he says that is is a infringement of your constitutional rights if you've got if you're in pain and you need relief you should be able to get that relief if you can afford it or if you can purchase it and you have the means to do that, you should be able to do that. The province is countering saying that is um, fundamentally wrong. You don't have a constitutional right to that. And in any event, uh, to allow a parallel private system to flourish, uh, which it could very well do uh, with that kind of money flowing around, would uh, it, uh, really harm the public side be- on, a, on a couple of points. One, you would drain uh, human resources from the public side over to the private side. Doctors would leave for more p- lucrative uh, careers on the private side. That would lengthen wait times on the public side. And that's the counter-argument from the Attorney General of B.C., which is the, the counterpart here, that uh, any any sort of um, endorsation or legalization of a private clinic allowing people to buy medical services would undoubtedly hurt the public side, which is a national program, and would, in, in fact, infringe on the constitutional rights of people in the public system. So it's a, it's a fascinating argument. And the one thing I, I just keep in mind, Jody, that Brian Day has already won an important ruling here. It came a couple of years ago when the NDP government uh, brought in a law, an amendment, that said it had fines for doctors who worked in both the private and public system. If a doctor were to extra bill patients, they would be fined $10,000 for a first offense, $20,000 for a second offense. Day sought an injunction against that, and he successfully sought that, just, just as Janet Winteringham ruled that they had demonstrated that if people were denied surgeries uh, and medical procedures in his clinic, in private clinics, that could potentially uh, pose physical and psychological harm to them. So he's already had a judge essentially ruling in his favor on a key point of this lawsuit. But again, we don't know what the current judge is going to rule yet. This is an unbelievably contentious issue. You post something about this on Twitter and you will get mm-hmm. inundated with people screaming about the healthcare system or the wait times and and how it is time to make the shift to a two-tier system or or endorsing private health care. Many making the argument that specifically here in uh, southern BC, the opportunity lies in us just going across the border. You can get an MRI tomorrow afternoon if you need it. So why wouldn't we, um, you know, have private clinics that can expedite that? It would it would ease up the lineup. And, and it's so interesting to hear all the facets and the pieces of this puzzle, but how you lay it out, it, it's very clear, Keith, that, you know, the the assumption that this would like free up space in our healthcare system if there was uh, an opportunity to pay for private care. But of course, it's the human resources piece that yes. people are missing, right? That, that's a, a critical part of this entire yeah. argument. There are only so many doctors and there's also only so many nurses or specially trained nurses. It's not like you can suddenly create a parallel system and, and tap into an untapped pool of, of uh, trained people. Uh, so it would naturally bleed some resources away from the public system, which would theoretically increase wait times for uh, on top of existing wait times. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to flee the public system into the private system, but it would you know, undoubtedly have some sort of impact on the flow of human resources from one side to the other. And keep in mind, this is not so much uh, about the existence of a private clinic. Private clinics are part of intrinsically part of the public health care system. Health authorities in BC contract out services to many private clinics. Uh, if you want, uh, you're, in fact, you're informed when you uh, um, seek specific procedures, elective surgeries in a health authority, you will be informed this, may, this uh, procedure may be performed in a private clinic. It doesn't mean the private clinic is charging you money. Your service is covered by the public uh, system, but it's just the physical location of where you get this uh, procedure done 
may not be in a public uh, facility. It may be in a private facility. Also, uh, private clinics do WCB cases, Workers' Compensation Board, or WorkSafe mm-hmm. BC. Uh, all those cases go to private clinics because there's no wait list for those because the goal there is to get people back on their feet and back in the workforce and contributing to the economy. So they don't necessarily go through the wait times that uh, you would go uh, would face if you got hurt at home, for example. So private clinics have a role to play. It's whether or not you can basically buy your way into the system, right. uh, a system, uh, and achieve a medical procedure simply because you have the ability to pay rather than on the basis of need, which is what the public system is based on. That's the current system. Can you just explain the double billing piece uh, in layman's terms? Well, it's basically uh, when you go get a hip replacement in at VGH or wherever you do in a, in a hospital, you're not paying anything. I mean, you've, you know, for years you paid your medical service premiums, uh, but those are gone now. Uh, but it's just what your taxes and are covered. When you go into a private clinic, you don't have to pay uh, $5,000, for example. But, and the, the reason you will pay that is because you want that surgery done now rather than wait six, eight months, a year, uh, in, in this situation, Brian Day is not the only one in court here. He's in court, his corporation's in court, the Canby Clinic, but also, um, I think there's another clinic involved here, but there's also four plaintiffs, four patients that he somewhat artfully is included here because it, they, they all have compelling cases. A woman has needed spinal surgery and was told she had to wait 27 months in the public system. Uh, someone else has chronic sinus pain and was told, uh, I think, at least a year's wait in the public system. And, you know, that can sort of, you know, tug on legal uh, heartstrings here that how can you justify asking someone who needs uh, desperately needed spinal surgery to wait two and a half years in the public system when she could get that, albeit for thousands of dollars, uh, very quickly in a private clinic. Ultimately, she I understand she went down to the United States to receive her, her treatment, as did one of the other plaintiffs, but uh, he has picked four people whose experiences in the public system are not enviable at all and certainly are hard to justify, and that's what he's in front of the judge. So closing arguments today. Yeah, they've been going on uh, this week. Uh, it's a very complex case, as you say. Uh, the issues are, are multi-leveled, uh, multi-tiered. Uh, the complexities are significant, but the implications are for right across the country. There are similar challenges being mounted in several other provinces, so everybody's keeping an eye on this case because it could fundamentally alter the shape of what really sets Canada apart from many countries, including the United States, which is our public health care system. And if Ryan Day wins, you know, uh, critics fear for the worst. Day insists it's not going to be for the worst. It simply will allow a number of people to uh, get medical treatment uh, faster than they would get in the public system. It won't have an adverse effect. But both sides are, are you know, uh, I think inflating the impact or the non-impact that this case is going to have. But make no mistake, it's going to have a big impact. All right, there's polarizing sides here. Keith, as always, thank you. All right, take care. Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. You know, this This has been an historic week for global markets, and in particular, the Dow Jones. I mean, you you need not be a stock market investor to be watching the the red numbers with a little bit of a jolt to your system, a bit of an adrenaline rush for many, certainly. Joining us now is one economic expert who actually called this back in December and then again in January. Michael Campbell, host of Money Talks, is with us on the line. Hi, Michael. Hi, Jody. You're right. It's been quite a week. (laughs) It's been somewhat unprecedented, no? Well, certainly in terms of points. I mean, the Dow Jones is coming from a much loftier level at 29,000. But the actual point drops, like these 1,100-point days, uh, today we're still at about 850, 900. We'll see where it ends in the next few minutes. But, yeah, it's the actual point drop is the greatest uh, since the Great Depression. So it certainly got people's attention. When you're knocking off 4% on a day or 6% uh, today as the TSE uh, plays catch-up at this moment, uh, yeah, it's significant. There's something to note there. Let's talk about Canadian markets. What happened? happened yesterday when they closed early. Well, that was really bad news, to be honest. I mean, they're saying that they normally get about 90 uh, million share volume. They got 190 million. It couldn't handle it. Bottom line, they just couldn't handle and make an orderly market. So they closed her down two hours early. But all of that selling sort of got piled on first thing this morning as we went way down on the TSX. So it it didn't really have an impact in terms of whether the market was going up or down. I just thought it was bad news that on a day when people want to change their positions, want to get out of the market, 
Uh, they couldn't, bottom they could, line. Literally yeah. could not access yeah. their stocks. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the sell-off and, and or market cor- correction and the perhaps prediction, if you can crystal ball it a bit, with regard to appetite for getting back in. Well, a couple of things. One is just to remind people, and I do this all the time, because a lot of Canadians don't think they're in the market. And I say, oh, yes, you are. If you are working in this country, you are in part of the Canada Pension Plan. It is heavily in the market. I estimate that it's probably dropped about $15 billion in that ballpark, you know, in their equity portfolio over the last, uh, you know, six trading days. Uh, You know, people, you know, about 30, 35% of the Canadian public belongs to a workplace pension. Well, you're also getting killed there. And I can tell you just one little thing just to put in, you know, about predictions and forecast we're going to have a major pension problem across the western world we're within two years of it we've already seen lots of signs lots of problems in different pensions but it's going to be sort of top of mind headline stuff we can't afford to have uh, both the decline in interest rates which means you know my portfolio that's got bonds is making about one and a half percent uh, you know, and then the stock side gets nailed. We can't have that. And, and speaking of bonds, sorry, Jody, I'll just that's address, okay. Th- this this was a job dropper for me. What's happening, of course, is money's leaving the market. It's going somewhere. Well, that somewhere has been into safety. Bonds are perceived as safety. Government bonds. Oh my gosh! I looked at the ten-year bond in the states. It's dropped down to one point one five percent in interest. In other words, the U.S. government can borrow at one point one five percent for the next 10 years, you know, over this 10-year bond if they take it out today. That's a monster record. I mean, that's that's obliterating the all-time low on interest rates. So we could maybe expect, I know you are talking earlier a little bit about maybe the Bank of Canada takes action, but what we can expect is another mortgage rate drop because the mortgage rates, you know, so a five-year rate or something like that is predicated on what's going on in the bond market and the bond market rates are falling dramatically. So when do we start using the R word for real, recession? Well, you know, this is what's hit on the, it seems to me, in the marketplace. About a week ago Monday, uh, we had Apple saying, you know what, we're not going to get our new iPhone out. We can't get people to Taiwan to do the last bit of manufacturing with uh, Foxconn, you know, the the adjustments to the manufacturing, the quality control, all of that. So it's going to get delayed. Oh, yeah, and we can't tell you what our earnings are going to be in the next quarter because there's so much uncertainty around, uh, you know, the, the coronavirus. But, I mean, that's sort of what's, for me, a no-kidding Sherlock moment. But yeah. that's when the market started to notice it, that, you know, I mean, airlines are going to see their, uh, you know, bottom line hit hard here. You know, tourist agencies or, or tourist groups, that kind of stuff, going to get hit hard. Supply chains around the world are going to prevent production because so much of it comes out of China. And I'll give you again one of the more interesting numbers I came up with in the last couple of weeks is I had no idea that China actually produces 97 percent of antibiotics. So it's going to hit the pharmaceutical industry. 97%? Exactly. So when they sort of slow down, we're going to, excuse me, feel that, you know, in the, in the pharmaceutical industry, but there's also things like, you know, ibuprofen. It's about 90% of ibuprofen's produced there. I just didn't know it was to that degree. And other industries, the semiconductor industry, well, 29% of their profits comes out of China. So bam, you're hit. Uh, There's just so many aspects that the market finally wanted to focus on that it's going to be very real in terms of earnings, uh, you know, in the next quarter. Uh, You got, by the way, I heard you uh, talking a little bit earlier about, uh, you know, the Canadian economy in the last quarter was basically flatlining. Well, I'll tell you, the first quarter ain't going to be robust with this stuff going on. Well, we got COVID-19 and blockades. We can't move goods and services, never mind if if we could get it. We got 46... Um, ships off the coast right, right here in BC that can't get to the port to move the, the goods. It's I, yeah, compounded. I, a, I Absolutely. And I made a comment earlier uh, this week on our business comments uh, that uh, the biggest threat I still see in Canada is complacency. Mm. We have not decided that economic growth is something that we want to prioritize. Well, we're going to find out the hard way now. Uh, you're going to see deficits go way up. These are not, we're not hitting any of the numbers the federal government forecast in their budget projections. So we're going to see higher deficits. In fact, <laughs> Finance Minister Morneau already said that in February, uh, sorry, in December. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, I, my point is this stuff impacts us. And, and I know your time is short, so I'll leave you with one last thing. This was the second warning we have. We ignored the first. The first warning, I said, was the biggest financial story of the year, and no one talked about it. And that's what happens when you get a liquidity problem. In the overnight lending markets, we had interest rates go from 2% borrowing to 10% in a matter of hours. So you had to borrow at 10% if you wanted money. 
well, that was the first warning. We've got a liquidity problem. This is the second one. What I've seen within the market this week tells me that, yeah, we had lots of sellers. We didn't have a lot of buyers at times, and we had this big drop all of a sudden. This is the bigger story here, and I, I guarantee if I'm still around and you still want to phone me, you wait. Within two years, we're going to be talking about a much bigger problem, It's called, and it'll be in the monetary system. And we see these signposts hit absolutely as predicted. Well, it tells me the probability of the last one is much stronger. That's where the big one is. And we've got politicians who are absolutely asleep at the switch here. We've got the Canadian public asleep at the switch. We are going to look back and say, we couldn't afford to say no to so much in terms of economic growth. And uh, that's the environment we're in now. I predict mm-hmm. in, in two years, you'll be here and I will be phoning you. <laughs> I, I like the latter half. The first, Jess, I think that's 50-50. Oh, I, I'll, come I'll on. be here tomorrow morning. That's, that's, that's right. I, as far as I know today, I haven't got the phone call, so I'm still on tomorrow morning. And I'll tell you, I've said this, and I say we've been writing this and mm-hmm. giving the dates, by the way, too. You have been. Yeah. So the big thing is uh, you can't afford to make a mistake now going out in the next two years. Governments can't afford it. Individuals. And I have, uh, I have no reason to have any confidence that there's an elected person in this country who understood just what happened this week, who understood what happened in the overnight lending markets in September. So everybody well, needs to tune into Money Talks at 8.30 I on Saturday morning. I hope so. Well, morning. it's a good reason. I, I said it today, is. Put, take off your political hats and come and listen to the real world. 8.30 <laughs> at Pacific time across the Chorus Radio Network. Always a pleasure to chat with you. I each and every time I learn something valuable, Michael. Thank oh, you. That's great. Thanks, Jody. That's Michael Campbell, host of Money Talks. And we have got to head south of the border because time is running out for Democrats to gain enough support to win the South Carolina primary taking place tomorrow. As of today, former Vice President Joe Biden and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders are fighting uh, toward the finish line 1 and 1A at this point. Biden expected to carry the state, but Sanders remains in the lead in national polling. So let's take the temperature from the capital of the U.S. Joining us on the line is Global News uh, Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Hello, Reggie. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening and good night in case I don't see you. But uh, let's, t- where are we at here? I mean, I'm watching ravenously. I watched the last debate. I'm watching the polls. I saw Joe Biden's heartfelt exchange with the pastor who lost his wife. Like there's so many pieces of this puzzle. And yet you go back to the polling numbers and it's just sort of one in one A, Bernie and Biden. Yeah, it is, especially when you're looking nationally. It's still Bernie Sanders in the lead. South Carolina, uh, you know, may give a bit of a boost to Joe Biden, who desperately needs some kind of a win on this uh, kind of election campaign so far. And he is likely going to take that on Saturday. Polls are showing that Biden has a double digit lead uh, in some polls, upwards of 20 points over Bernie Sanders. But Sanders is kind of slowly eroding what that big lead was just a couple of months ago. Uh, you know, South Carolina is a big state. It's got 54 delegates up for grabs. But this is kind of that firewall for Joe Biden. He's put all of his eggs in that one basket. He's been banking on this one win, hoping that it gives him a bit of a lift heading into next week's massive day on Super Tuesday. And he did get a big endorsement in South Carolina, too, right? He did. He got from one of the leading uh, uh, House representatives on the Democratic side, Representative Clyburn, giving uh, Biden that, uh, you know, well-anticipated, much-anticipated endorsement. Joe Biden has spent a good long part of his career working to build relationships with the African-American community in South Carolina, and that is why uh, he does so well with that state. Uh, you know, this is something that uh, most of the other candidates who have been on stage have really struggled with, is to reach out beyond either their core voters or into the more diverse pockets of America. But Joe Biden's had no problem with this, hence the reason that he's been uh, doing so well in all the polling. Now, Reggie, what about uh, Bernie Sanders? In the last, well, since I spoke to you last week, much has happened to Senator Sanders in terms of uh, the WikiLeaks piece and and sort of that viral, you know, he was in the meeting where Russia was interfering in 2016 to get Trump elected. And now the Russians are interfering allegedly in the 2020 run up by supporting Bernie Sanders because perhaps Trump can beat him. And then he adds on to that praising uh, Castro. Yeah, you know, this is this is kind of a hole that Bernie Sanders kind of dug himself into, particularly with these these comments about Castro, trying to say that the regime surrounding Castro is not good, but some of the policies that Castro has kind of put in place across Cuba worked for the people. You know, there are supporters of Sanders who are saying that they understood where he was trying to go with that, but his messaging wasn't clear and his messaging simply just wasn't on topic for what everyone was talking about. The problem is it's not really eating away at any of the support for Sanders. 
And I think, you know, when we're talking about meddling and we're talking about how everything is kind of uh, coalescing here, it's important to watch what happens on Saturday in South Carolina. It's considered what's called an open primary, meaning you don't have to be registered or tethered to a specific party to cast a ballot. And there's kind of a growing movement within some Republican circles to go out and actually vote in the Democratic race, since there's no GOP uh, uh, primary, to actually vote for Bernie Sanders, which would take away support from Joe Biden, because there's also a lot of people in Trump circle who want to see him go up against someone like Bernie Sanders. So there's a lot of moving parts at play as we go into Saturday here. Okay, that is just fascinating, Reggie. So for many of us who are quickly are getting studied up on U.S. politics over the past, let's say, three and a half years, uh, going through this sort of primary process um, in such a, a detailed way. So in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, you had to be a registered Democrat in order to take part in any of the voting scenarios. And yet in, in South the, Carolina, anybody can. Yeah, it's considered open. So you do not have to have allegiance to a party. You simply go and you you kind of oh. register on the spot and cast your ballot there. And you remember, Republicans canceled the GOP primary in South Carolina, fearing that somebody may actually run against the president. So there is just no option for a Republican to cast a ballot as we head into primary season. And they're simply going to potentially try to toy with it to give President Trump, uh, you know, a preferred nominee that Republicans want to see him go up against. It's so it's wild to watch. So when are we going to see things trimmed down? I mean, there was a time that felt like just yesterday where we had to have two debate nights in order to get all of the Democratic nominee hopefuls uh, on on the stage. And that's been whittled down to, to the point where you can almost name all of them. Tom Steyer, some people are still like, who's the guy in the plaid tie? Um, when are we going to see it really get down uh, the numbers down where there's nobody sort of splitting the vote. Cause that's what, the, when you and I spoke last week, it's like Klobuchar and Buttigieg went up against each other in that last debate so hard because they're sort of the moderates that, that are, you know, you're either voting for one or the other in those two. So at some point those votes are going to go to who? Uh, well, some vo- at some point, those votes are going to just potentially go to someone else. You know, you go back to Tom Steyer. He's yeah. the guy that nobody really knows about, but he's polling third in South Carolina right now because over the last year, he has spent tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars to get himself some name recognition. The problem is it's not going to probably go much further than South Carolina. Once we start seeing, uh, you know, the results from South Carolina and then heading into Super Tuesday, there are so many delegates up for grabs that if somebody like Bernie Sanders walks away with a big win and he kind of grabs this almost insurmountable lead, it's nearly impossible for someone like Klobuchar or someone like Buttigieg or someone even like Elizabeth Warren to continue on because there simply won't be enough support for them. Uh, and if there is support for them, it's going to be so whittled down that they're going to have to choose one of those other moderate candidates. So I would assume by the time we head into, say, the Florida or Arizona primaries on March the uh, 17th, uh, we will likely have fewer names on the ballot because there simply isn't going to be enough support and money to go around to keep these campaigns afloat. So what's the date we're looking at for knowing who is the nominee, period? That is going to take place uh, in the summertime in June, when we head to, or in July rather, when we head to the Democratic National Convention. Okay. That assuming that coronavirus doesn't uh, kind of Cancel play that. into a factor here and stop this mass gathering from happening. If that doesn't happen, it will be in uh, July uh, when all the Democrats will gather together, all the delegates will go away, uh, will rather gather and then stand behind somebody. And sometime in the middle of July, we will have just one person who is standing at the top of that Democratic ticket, and that will be the one person who goes up against President Trump. Something tells me we're going to talk many times between now and then. And I appreciate this conversation, as always, Reggie. From now until forever. <laughs> Enjoy your Friday, my friend. You've earned Thank it. You. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington, D.C. correspondent here, uh, breaking it down for us on a very big week. Claire Allen in studio with me, working on, you put together the hot question of the day I today. Did. You're like, here, I've got the hot question, Jode. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, what is it? And so the hot question of the day is surrounding this study. You want to set it up? Yeah, so it's a study that's kind of asking about what people find to be awkward conversations. Mm. So have you ever found yourself, Jody, in like a conversation that goes into sort of an awkward territory where you're like, I don't know if I want to share my true thoughts and I don't really want to hear your true thoughts. And I really would just wish if we could just stop talking about this completely. Yes. Yeah, so when I was growing <laughs> up, my dad always told me that his mom, so my grandma, mm-hmm. used to tell him that there were three topics that you should never discuss at a dinner party. Three. According okay. to her. Okay. She said they were politics, religion, and money. And it seems that she was right. That most British <laughs> Columbians agree with her. Because 
A new survey from FP Canada called the Discomfort Index found that when it comes to taboo subjects, British Columbians are likely to avoid discussions about sex, followed right behind money, politics, and then at the bottom, religion. So what I thought was really interesting is this topic about sex. It apparently makes British Columbians squirm the most. And I was wondering if that sentiment could be in response to the Me Too movement, Hmm. because discussions about power, consent, sex have created some a lot of tensions and conversations, as demonstrated by this SNL clip from 2018. I think... Careful. Yeah. I, I think that some women... Careful. Or, or rather, um, or some men have a proclivity... Careful. Help me. Okay, um, look... The thing that I keep going back to is it seems like if she wanted to leave... Oh, no. She could have just... Oh, no. Left. <laughs> Pretty I funny. remember it well. Yes, and I think that's con- those are conversations that a lot of British Columbians have had you know, with friends or family, just about this whole idea of power and consent, and and especially with this uh, Me Too movement. But you know, there are other things on this on this uh, survey as well. So, um, what I found was really interesting is that this survey was put together by FP Canada, and it talked a lot about money being an uncomfortable topic. Mm-hmm. And Kelly Keene is an author and personal finance educator with FP Canada, and she said she was also surprised that money was a taboo subject. One in four. BC residents said that they thought that money was a taboo topic right up there with religion, politics, and sex. So we asked CKNW listeners, what topic is the most taboo to them? We said, is it sex, money, politics, or religion? And a majority of respondents to our hot question of the day said that talking about money actually makes them very uncomfortable. What the survey also found is SP Canada Discomfort Index also found that Over 40% of BC residents are not talking to their spouse about money. Like that, you know, that's a big part of your relationship. And obviously, you know, you're, you're sharing a life together. Money is a huge component. And if you're not talking about it, some people, I mean, anecdotally, not in the survey, but just people I talk to, um, you know, some of them don't even know what their spouse makes and they've been together years or decades. I get that it's really tough, but it's so important to get those lines of communication open. No kidding. Yeah. So it was pretty interesting. And I mean, right now, so I mean, everything is pretty closely, like everything is coming in pretty close. At the bottom, people say they're not that uncomfortable talking about politics. Only 13% of respondents said that politics makes them feel uncomfortable. But then number one was money with 30%. Coming quickly behind is religion with 29%. And then sex is at 28. So if you, if this sounds like you as someone who doesn't like to talk about money with your partner or in public, Kelly has some tips for you. Okay. What you do is you start really slow. If you've never had the conversation and you've been together for a while, you don't want to kind of just make it this big thing. You might start with something so simple. One easy question is what does money mean to you? And then really let the other person answer that. And if you distill down, almost every single answer is going to come down to two different um, answers. And it's usually freedom or security. And that's going to tell you so much about that person because usually the person that says money equals freedom, that's, the, that's usually the spender, the person that wants to take on more risk. The person that says security oftentimes is the person that does not want to take maybe investment risk. Um, they want, you know, they're usually more of the saver. And oftentimes in a relationship, there's the freedom and the security person. So what do you do? Uh, you can keep that conversation going. You might want to bring in someone like a financial professional, like a certified financial planner that's going to help you have the conversation. Make sure it's not a fight. But also, quite frankly, there's usually one partner that is, you know, taking the reins when it comes to the finances. The other one isn't. And if you're not checking in at least once a month, every other month, uh, it can really feel like a massive burden for the one spouse that's taking on all of the responsibility, even if they're not the breadwinner. Okay, I have to ask you, are you mm-hmm. freedom or are you security? 
uh, security. Super duper security also. I know. It's fascinating, though, what a great point that Kelly makes there Mm -hmm. in just opening up that dialogue. Yeah, a simple question. You can see if your, I guess, ideal or your views match or your values match. Because you're totally allowed to say freedom. No, totally. Of but course. it speaks to who, you, how you view money, and yeah. you know, money, financial issues are among some of the top reasons why relationships break down. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that a majority of British Columbia, well, a certain percentage of uh, British Columbians, feel uncomfortable talking about that that subject. Yeah. And uh, she also said that when it comes to religion and politics, she believes that, uh, or the the survey found that you know British Columbians feel a little uncomfortable talking about it. Um, and I asked sort of like, well, why? Like, why Why do you think that is? Why do we feel uncomfortable about it? And uh, Kelly said that she thinks, you know, we're a little bit more um, conservative than maybe our neighbors to the south. And we see a lot of the craziness that might go on down there. Mm-hmm. And we just don't want to be involved. So we're, we're more conservative with sharing our views. Um, but I think we're that polite. might, are yes, polite. polite. Yeah. I think that might be changing, though. I think people are, are becoming more and more outspoken. And, and you can see on Twitter, there's a, lots of people love sharing their opinions and they love getting into, you know, the back and forth about it. Oh, I, got, I grew up in a house where all of these topics were on the table. Oh, that's like nice. I absolutely grew up with it all out there. And and with regard to religion, which I think is the contentious one, mm-hmm. it's interesting that it's you know not number one for many because right. it, it can be explosive at at best. Yes, well, <laughs> when you open it up. And from what we've seen is that you know um, uh, people are there are there is there's stats that show that some Canadians are turning away from religion, so that could mm-hmm. be a reason why. But that people was don't a- talk it, about it as much is because maybe they're not religious themselves. But that was my family, oh. and my family was where whatever you want, oh, nice. whoever you want to be, just do your homework. Yeah, do your homework, right? And understand what you're doing. Yeah, and, but you're you're free to be. And, and then we would talk various things through. But money, if I hadn't had a conversation with my stepdad when I was like 14 years old, I wouldn't have an RSP today that really um, speaks to my compound interest possibilities. Because <laughs> at 15, he was like, and now your job at Dairy Queen, Jody, you're going to put money aside. That's great. Because, you know, I, I am someone that, whose family didn't talk that much about it. But I think that I was able to go to, a, I went to the, to my bank and started, mm. you know, saving and, and talking to a professional about you're it earlier. Frugal, you're on it. Well, yeah. yeah. But I mean, a lot of people don't have that conversation. As someone who's getting married pretty soon, uh, a lot of people don't talk about that stuff before yeah. they get married. Now, finally, okay. I thought this was pretty interesting. On a bright side, the survey found that British Columbians have become more comfortable when it comes to talking about their health. Yes. Now, interestingly enough, they found that... Most people in BC were willing to talk about their health. And I find that kind of interesting because it's like we're stuck back in the 1960s when it comes to money. Because for some of your listeners that were around back then, they'll remember that you used to whisper the word cancer, right? Mm. Uh, Today we went for the cure. We would never, ever think that someone was wrong or bad for having an illness. Oh, thank you, Terry Fox, for opening up yeah. that conversation but in a big way. She's right. I mean, obviously, yep. this was before my time, but my parents have spoken to me about how there were, you know, women on their street that had breast cancer and they couldn't yeah. say it. Right. And I think it's so lovely to see that regardless of, you know, what sort of ailment it is, that people speak openly about it and they find communities where they can connect. And she said that's something that they've seen the attitudes changing and Kelly said that she hopes that attitudes regarding politics well maybe not that one but sex <laughs> and, and money will change as well that people will be more open about talking about these things in their uh, direct relationship or in a greater society it's really a fascinating thing so Claire we're going to open up the phone lines here right mm-hmm. is the awkward conversation what is the topic that you do not like to broach with your family or your friends uh, dinner party sitting at the bar whatever it is six 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell. Is it sex? Is it politics? Is it religion? Or is it your health? Or money. Money. Sorry. Sex, <laughs> sex religion. <laughs> is it sex, politics, and politics, money. Politics, religion, or money. Right, right, right. Yes, so I yes, threw yes. in health there health because is, that was just a piece of it. Well, health, people like talking about their health. But we're getting there, right? Because on the other side, I was thinking when we were talking about the health piece is mm-hmm. how we've even lifted the taboo on talking about mental health. Yes, that was so, a good point. You know, a point. it's a good piece of the puzzle. It's like, yeah, you know what? Have the conversation. Let's let's air this out. Um, sorry, I got a note here. Oh, just had a woman call in, didn't want to give her name, who will be donated to, bl- to Blanket uh, BC because of our segment. Mm. Thank you to whoever you are. 
because you didn't want to give your name. Again, that's at the Giants uh, game at the Langley Event Center at 5.30 today. So I love I love a little note from Ben Dooley. Thanks for that, buddy. So we're going to the phone lines now, 604-280-9898. We start with Nancy in New Westminster. Hello, Nancy. Hi, Jody and Claire. Good Hi, discussion today on uh, the hot question. Um, part of it, I think, is perspective and who you're talking to at the time. But I would like to add two other topics to your list. Ooh, okay. And that is death mm. and um, things like a pregnancy loss and bereavement and grief. Yeah. Well, you know what? That's, That's a really good topic. You know what, Nancy, because I can tell you from personal experience, having had three miscarriages that I do talk about, Mm -hmm. because once you open up that conversation, you find out how many other people have been through it or have recently gone through it. And there is some uh, healing in that discussion. However, having it referenced to you like, oh, I'm so sorry Mm -hmm. again. Yeah, it's tough. That's tough. So there's two sides of that. Nancy, do do you have a tough one that, that... that you find you, you know, struggle with? I was surprised with? that politics didn't go higher on that list. To right. me, that's the one that I really don't like talking about with other people. Mm, it can blow up pretty quickly. Thank you for the call. I appreciate that. Those are such great uh, things that she brought up. Yeah. And I think death is a really interesting one because um, people don't like to talk about their own mortality. And I think people, nope. when you're st- making a will and stuff like that, that's when you start to see people you know, not wanting to deal with it. It's awkward yeah. to broach family members about if they've you made their plans. You feel like you're jinxing plans. yourself. Totally. Yeah, Greg and Surrey, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi there. Um, I personally, like, I'll talk to anybody about anything, and, and actually I enjoy having good discussions, good exchanges of ideas. The problem I find when you're having discussions about politics or religion is people usually come at it from an emotional point of view because those two things are usually tied into people's emotions in some way. Right. And as soon as I find that you have that, extra factor in the conversation you lose the ability to have a proper exchange of ideas and to be able to talk critically about those subjects or wanting the Uh, person wanting to win the person over right i want you to agree with my stance in politics i want you to agree with my stance on religion exactly and these days it comes down to if you don't agree with me you must be against me and Mm -hmm. so that throws a lot of people off like i i don't care about somebody else's opinion I'm just there for an exchange of ideas. What do you know that I don't know? Because it could change the way that I look at things. But if I happen to say something that you don't like and you get emotional, just because you get offended by what I said doesn't mean that what I said was offensive. Oh, I like that as a statement. That's a good one. Thanks, Greg. You're welcome. Oh, Oh. Greg, so enlightened. We've got really smart listeners. (laughs) They, They come in with some good... POV, good point of view. And you know what? I totally think he's right. I think that if you're able to approach a conversation and take the emotion out of it, you're going to learn something about the other person or maybe a point of view that you didn't know about. But I think that's what's kind of missing in today's conversations is that everybody is so heated and so emotional. And you're right. They want to win people over onto their side Mm -hmm. instead of just learning about one another. But you're very pragmatic. You do bring that comment. You have opinions. I do have opinions. But but I don't 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 like to share them that much. Yeah, you're so every guarded. once in a while, exactly. And you know why? Because I've been, uh, I've been bitten before, and it's uh, it's not fun. And I, that happens on Twitter. That's something I think a lot of people are cautious about, myself included, is sharing your opinions on Twitter because there are those people that will come after you, and that's never any fun. It's a thick skin piece.